Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. I'm Holly Fry. This episode is coming out on Christmas Day. Indeed. Ho, ho, ho. We looked around for something Christmassy to talk about. Past hosts have some great ones in the archive. There's Who Was Good King Wenceslas. There's the Christmas Truce. There's one on whether Oliver Cromwell really canceled Christmas. And there's even one on Saturnalia. And thanks to a request from listener Leanne and our earlier episode this week on Laura Ingalls Wilder, this year's Christmas episode is about the terrible winter of 1880 and 1881, which was immortalized in Laura Ingalls Wilder's The Long Winter. Laura, both real and fictional, was going on 14, and the winter that she wrote about was a real event. And in the book, their first inkling of how bad this winter was going to be is while they're cutting hay in hot weather. And Laura and Pa find a muskrat house that has very thick walls. And Pa says that this is a sign that a very hard winter is to come. They keep on harvesting the hay through September, and then they wake up on October 1st to a really heavy frost. They rush to get as much of the harvest in as they can. And Pa goes to hunt, but he can't find any geese or other birds anywhere. The first blizzard, that's the first blizzard, right. uh, hits in October and it lasts for three days and nights, which is bad enough to stop all the trains. And on the fourth day, they find several cows outside. This is so heartbreaking. With their heads frozen to the ground, thanks to the ice that was formed by their own breath. So yeah. the moisture in their exhalation froze on them. Pa saves them. So it's still, so hard it's, it's it's still very sad. Uh, not long after that, in a depiction that is quite problematic by today's standards, a Native American man tells a bunch of folks at the store that a big winter is coming with seven months of blizzards. Uh, his, his physical description and his use of language today, people would say, are pretty heavily stereotyped. The Ingalls family moves into town for the winter, where they hope they're going to have a little bit of an easier time of it. And the blizzards do indeed continue for months and months with various alarming adventures and misadventures to go along. Uh, there's frequent talk about whether the worst is over and when the trains might be running again. Uh, the cover copy of the book that Tracy used for a lot of this research is shockingly merry. It has children having a snowball fight on it. They're sledding. It looks like the jolliest, most enjoyable and delightful time ever. But we know that it was a little bit rougher than that. Um, in reality, it's really quite oppressive. Coal and food were becoming increasingly scarce as long as the trains can't get through. And for a while, even when the weather is good in the story uh, and good enough for school, school is canceled because they don't have enough coal to heat the building. Some of the series' most memorable tidbits happen during this hard winter, like having to break the ice in the water basin to wash their faces in the morning, carrying flat irons upstairs to warm the beds, Ma bringing frozen washing in from the line, and Almanzo, who was not yet known as Manly, trying to hide his seed wheat so that his brothers won't sell it to other people who run out of food. And as things get worse, the Ingalls family has to twist their hay into sticks to burn when they have nothing else for fuel. Almanzo Wilder and Cap Garland make a heroic trip to buy wheat for families that will otherwise starve. There's also the thing that everyone mentioned to me when I said we were doing a little house-related episode, and that is that they had to grind grain in the coffee mill all day to make enough flour for dinner. 
This would have made a flour that was not at all like bread flour. It was more, really more like a coarse graham flour. And of course, as always happens during the Northern Hemisphere, Christmas happens during winter. Uh, a few days before Christmas, the mail actually comes through and everyone is overjoyed. The family gets a letter from a reverend saying they should expect a Christmas barrel from his church. And knowing that the odds are long on that barrel actually arriving by Christmas, they decide to save the church papers and youth's companions that have all come in the mail to open on Christmas Day. The girls also start trying to figure out how to get some actual presents. Once they tally up all their money and go shopping, it turns out there's really nothing to be bought. They do find some suspenders for Pa, and Laura decides to give things she's already knitted and embroidered for herself to her mom and sisters. Grace also gets a toy, and Ma gets two cans of oysters, which were basically the last of the provisions at one of the stores. She uses them to make oyster soup for lunch. Everyone, including Laura, gets a piece of candy that Pa had brought ahead of time. But that's all that Laura gets. Christmas night, they run out of kerosene for the lamp which means the rest of the winter is just going to be dark and sad. The blizzards go on and on and on, and it's May before a freight train brings anything new to the town. But on the upside, they get to have Christmas again, complete with turkey and cranberries. And Laura finally gets a present, uh, which is beautiful yarns and embroidery silks, uh, and she can use them up to replace the things that she gave away to Ma and her sister. Yeah. I'm actually kind of conflicted about this this present for Laura because she wasn't the fondest of sewing. So in a way, this present is work. Well, but, but she couldn't have bought those things. She so. is grateful for it. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the many examples of what we might consider uh, good values. So it's a very sweet story in the end, uh, in, in spite of the danger and oppression in the middle. But how much of that Blizzard after blizzard after blizzard and this kind of sense of good gracious, when will the train come? How much of that is real? There's a short answer. What is that? All of it. Spoiler. (laughs) This really was a real weather event. Uh, People during the time called it the hard winter and even the starvation winter. Hard winter was actually Laura's original title for the book. A 1904 history of South Dakota reads... The Great Blizzard in the middle of October 1880 was the initial performance of a of a winter unprecedented and never succeeded in severity in the history of Dakota or the Northwest. Heavy snows and severe storms came at frequent intervals, rendering train service unreliable and uncertain, hindering the removal of crops and the shipment into the country of supplies of fuel and groceries. And in some places, even the telegraph wires were under snow, so complete isolation. Yeah. Uh, Dismet, which is the town where they were living, did not start keeping weather records until 1889. But Yankton, South Dakota, which is about 110 miles to the south, did. Yankton reported lows as cold as 32 below zero Fahrenheit that winter. And even though there were days when the temperatures rose above freezing, they didn't last long enough for a real thaw. And so what had melted would then refreeze into ice. The rotary snowplow had also not yet been invented. This was a steam engine mounted plow used specifically for clearing railroad tracks. It was kind of like a vertically mounted fan carrying scoops that basically threw the snow out of the way as it moved. The first design came out in 1869, but it wasn't really viable. A working version of it didn't exist until 1883 or 1884. Would have been really, really useful had that been a couple of years faster. Yeah. 
And without this piece of equipment to keep things going, blowing snow quickly filled up the cuts through hills and mountains where the train tracks ran, packing into ice and making them completely impassable. Plus... People's efforts to clear the tracks when the weather allowed for it just made things worse because they made these very high snowbanks on either side. And that allowed for more drifting and packing as the wind blew. The train's inability to get through was really what made this winter so hard, and it brought the population of the area so perilously close to starvation. Uh, Because the blizzards had started so early, the harvest was already small. And no trains meant that there was no way to supplement that small amount of food people had uh, been able to bring in from their uh, crops. So the Ingleses had even harvested pumpkins that were not ripe yet, just so that they could get them in before the freeze. There are archival pictures of trains stuck in the snow, with the snow on either side of them taller than the train cars. Uh, one of these was taken in March of 1881 near Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, which is a name that fans of the series and the TV show will probably recognize. And Dismet was also a really new settlement at this time, so a lot of people had not cleared as much land or enriched it for better crops yet. And a lot of the people also did not have first-hand experience of the weather there. This terrible weather condition also meant that animals were scarce beforehand, having, having already taken shelter, thanks to their instincts. Uh, and they became pretty much impossible to find as the winter wore on. In the book, there's this one moment of hope when word spreads of an antelope herd near the town, and that hunt is unfortunately unsuccessful. And it's one of the very few large animal sightings the whole time in Laura's account. And as people ran out of fuel for burning, they broke down their outbuildings that they didn't crucially need. So fences and bridges, too, along with the Ingalls method of twisting hay into sticks, all went towards just keeping a fire going. Yes, staying warm, having something to cook on. But communities and families banded together so that they could ensure that the the what they did have was fairly distributed and to pool their resources as much as they were able. On February 2nd, a blizzard started that lasted for nine days and it dropped so much snow that some buildings were in snow up to their roofs. People had to tunnel through the snow in some locations and people who were still on their homesteads had to tunnel to their barns and their other outbuildings. The 1881 thaw started in April. Started in October and the thaw started in April. That's a long time. Uh, toward the end of the book, Laura references the Chinook winds. And these are winds that, that go down the eastern slopes of the Rockies. They warm up along the way and then they move across the plains. And they're responsible for bringing warmer weather and thawing to the area. This eventual thaw actually led to severe flooding. And some of this was simply the sheer volume of water from the snowmelt. And some was from ice jams in bends and narrow places in the rivers. And several towns actually flooded. And the course of the Missouri River shifted as a consequence. Some of the records that were set during these floods still stand. They have Never seen a flood comparable. Right. The roads and crops were also damaged as a result of the flooding, which made the recovery a lot slower. And even though it was called the starving winter, there actually weren't many reported deaths from starvation or freezing. Yes. Oddly lucky. So we've mostly been talking about what this winter was like for the predominantly white settlers out on the frontier. And that's because most of the written records that survive today are from that perspective. But this was naturally also an enormously difficult winter for the Native Americans in the area, too. 
And in some ways, it was even harder, since by this point in American history, many Native Americans had been removed to reservations, completely altering their way of life, and in many cases, robbing them of the means that they had previously used to sustain themselves through hard winters like this. The Great Sioux Reservation at this point in history spanned roughly the western half of what is now South Dakota. And that was really a fraction of the amount of land that that, that group had lived on before. One piece that we do have is a ledger book drawn by Lakota artist and spiritual leader Black Hawk. And that was created after he worked out a deal with William Edward Canton, who was an Indian trader in what was then Dakota Territory. And here's how Canton's daughter, whose name was Edith M. Teal, described this arrangement. Black Hawk, chief medicine man of the Sioux, was in great straits that winter, having several squaws and numerous children dependent upon him. He had absolutely nothing, no food, and he would not beg. Father knew his condition. He also knew that Black Hawk had a wonderful dream. So he sent for him and asked him to make pictures of his dreams, offering to furnish paper and pencils, and to give him 50 cents in trade at the store for each sheet that he brought in. So after drawing a couple of the images from his dream, Black Hawk moved on to drawings of other things relevant to his daily life and the Lakota customs, as well as pictures of crow warriors who were traditional enemies of the Lakota. And in the end, he made 76 drawings and earned $38 in trade at the store. Although, as we discussed earlier, it's not completely clear how well stocked the store would have even been. But it probably helped him out to, uh, you know get some provisions for his family. Yeah. And this uh, this ledger book actually survives today. There are scans of it on the on the Internet that we can link to from our show notes. One industrious person is actually fact checked whether Laura Ingalls Wilder's description of the weather actually uh, adds up to what the weather was really like or whether it's a sort of embellishment. And before we talk about that, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor. So speaking of Laura, let's go back to fact-checking her story. Right. So National Weather Service meteorologist and Ph.D. student Barbara Mays Bousted fact-checked the book. What she did was she cross-referenced meteorological records from nearby cities, including Omaha, Nebraska, and Des Moines, Iowa. These are not really that nearby, but they are the nearest by cities that were keeping records, as well as a few military forts in South Dakota. And based on historical accounts that she found, this winter got between 11 and 14 feet of snow on top of ice. According to her work, the three-day blizzard that marks the start of the long winter in the book really happened from October 15th to 18th, 1880. And in the book, the children are trapped by a blizzard while at school on December 6th. That also seems to have really happened uh, on December 2nd through the 4th. So pretty close there. If not, I mean, a couple days off is not that much. No, especially when you're reconstructing it from memory many, many years later. Uh, There was also really a blizzard on Christmas Day that year. The trip to get wheat that Almanzo and Cap took probably happened on February 16th, based on the clear night and the full moon. Bausted did all this fact-checking after rereading the book during a similarly severe modern winter, uh, which also had a thaw that led to flooding. And coincidentally, they had to roll out some of the few remaining rotary plows still in working order during that particular event. And she theorizes that this winter was caused by the jet stream pulling Arctic air deep into the Midwest, plus an El Nino year. 
That jet stream pattern is called a negative oscillation of the North Atlantic Oscillation. Without the negative uh, North Atlantic Oscillation, it would have been a warmer winter than normal, and wetter, for that matter, rather than wetter and full of blizzards. She has presentations on all of this at her website, which you can watch. We will link to them from our show notes. I love a little history and meteorology coming together. Yeah. There's also an interesting trivia bit. Uh, according to Bausted, this winter event was actually one of the things that led to the prevalence of, quote, blizzard as the word that means a blinding snowstorm. Before, it meant a knockout blow, and it was first used in relation to weather in 1862. So I made fun of the cover of my copy of The Long Winter, because it does not at all suggest my family and I nearly starved and my future husband almost died trying to get wheat for the town. Instead, it looks like a very happy, let's go play outside winter. And while that is kind of incongruous with the material that's inside, it turns out that even though it was a very lean winter, a lot of the people on the frontier kind of thought of it fondly. They were mostly young, healthy people, which helped them make it through. And according to the 1904 history book that we discussed earlier, uh, they said, quote, it is the almost universal testimony of the pioneers that they have never gotten more real enjoyment out of a winter than they did from the winter of the big blockade. Shortly after the big snow of February, a thaw came of sufficient power to soften the surface of the drifts and an immediate freeze followed, forming an impenetrable crust, and thereafter, slaying was superb. This condition continued until the 26th of April. I would imagine if you are having a horrific, seemingly never-ending winter, never-ending winter, uh, a diversion of slaying sounds great. Yeah, well, and then a thing that is kind of hard to remember sometimes is that being on the frontier um, for settlers was basically 24-hour-a-day work, essentially. I mean, not really 24-hour-a-day, but it was a constant labor and chore. Yeah. And if it got to this point that you were basically snowed in and you couldn't get any provisions and you couldn't do anything, you had a break from all the work that was a little <laughs> bit more substantial than the normal uh, reduction in workload that would happen during winter from not being planting and harvesting crops. Well, and it was also a big community building thing because they did all throw in their resources together and kind of share yeah. equally. And I imagine it formed some really interesting and meaningful, you know, long-term relationships amongst people. Yeah. Uh, this history book is also kind of glib about the like positive side of all of this flooding <laughs> Um, which is that most of the frontier towns that were affected were so new that there was very little to be lost when all of it was lost. It hit some more established cities very hard, but its tone is sort of like, it was a good thing they hadn't had time to do a whole lot of work here because, you know, it all got washed away. That's like the bright sidiest way to look at it. Just it was extremely bright sighty. <laughs> So, yes. Do you also have some listener mail for us I to enjoy? I do have some listener mail, and it's a quick one. Uh, it is from Emma, and Emma says, Hi, guys, I really love your podcast. My name is Emma, and I'm 15, and I got very excited listening to your podcast on Audrey Lord because she's amazing, and because through that podcast, I learned that she went to my high school. Hunter is very different now. We are no longer an all-girls school, for example, but knowing that someone as inspirational as her went here makes me feel like all of the stress we are put under is worth it. The poetry club Audrey Lord loved is no longer a club here at Hunter, but my friend and I have decided that we need to remedy the situation and restart it as soon as we can. Love the podcast. Thanks for the two great episodes, Emma. Thank you, Emma. I love that email so much. That made us both smile a whole lot. It did. Seems like a nice, happy note 
to end on for this Christmas Day podcast. If you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. If you do not, happy whatever you celebrate. Yeah, happy holiday or a specific holiday. Happy, hopefully not horrible winter if you're in a cold climate. Yes, if you're somewhere warm and summery, happy, happy summer Christmas. (laughs) I always think of that Tim Mention song called White Wine in the Sun now. Yeah. Which uh, you may or may not like, depending on how you feel about holidays. But... (laughs) Um, yes. Happy holidays to everyone. Indeed. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or anything else, we are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are on Pinterest. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, come to our website. Put the word blizzard into the search bar and you will have an article called 10 Biggest Snowstorms of All Time. These are all even bigger than this one. They're also individual snowstorms and not an entire season worth of snow. So, you can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, witcheshowstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.